let's separate the sense from the nonsense when it comes to artificial intelligence. On the show today, we are talking all about AI and the opportunity for businesses, society, and a whole lot more. Welcome to episode 46 of Sideload. Welcome to Sideload, the technology podcast from Edelman, London. I'm Jermaine Dallas and today we're talking about how AI is shaping the way that we live, work and think. And we're talking to a couple of the people who are already doing the thinking and working with AI for major brands. First up, there's Wael Elrafai. Wael is VP of Solutions Engineering at Hitachi Ventara. That's an Edelman client, by the way. He's been working with IoT, machine learning, AI, and big data for the past decade. And then there's Stuart Armstrong. Stuart is a researcher at the Future of Humanity Institute, which is part of Oxford University. Top of his agenda is the safety and possibilities of artificial intelligence. YL, Stuart, thanks so much for coming on Sideload. Thank you. So let's start off with this one then. We've got AI, you've got AGI, machine learning. There's all these terms sort of being banded around at the moment. So if you could just really break it down for us, what is AI? Because many people have been accused of misdefining it, haven't they? Yeah, so I can, I'll, I'll start with this and Stuart, feel free to jump in whenever. Uh, I think that uh, when, when we socially talk about AI, people are thinking about robots, really. People are thinking about Terminator. That's what people tend to think about Skynet or HAL 9000 and things like that. In the commercial world, typically when we say AI, we're talking about the ability to predict things, right? We're talking about the ability to predict when something's going to fail or optimize which ad you're going to click on or predict the next product you want to buy or how much you're willing to pay for it and so on and so forth, who your friends might be and, and, and that kind of thing. So that's an important element for for artificial intelligence in the commercial world. I'm going to leave it to Stuart to talk a bit about AGI, um, general intelligence, and uh, and maybe the academic view. It used to be clear what AI was, sort of the 80s and before. People were thinking of the AI as you get a computer to do what humans can do. And it was assumed that if you could get one kind of skill at a very high level, that would mean that you would automatically have all the skills. So there was no difference, roughly, between AI and AGI back in the 50s and 60s because they thought that, say, to drive a car safely, you would need to have all of the human's uh, recognition skills cognition and, and cognition and all that. Then it turned out that this was wrong. We could get a self-driving car without giving it a general intelligence. So the term AI sort of broke up or was applied to different things like uh, the Jeopardy winning Watson, the self-driving car, the, the things that are now much more narrow uh, that used to, we used to think would be symptom of a general intelligence. So now the term AGI is replacing uh, artificial general intelligence. That's basically what people used to think of as AI. And we are at quite an interesting and exciting time when we look at the the future, but a lot of people are still talking about this whole debate about whether machines are or will take humans' jobs. So where do we see AI being used now in the future? Is it the stuff that we are seeing in sci-fi films? 
Uh, I wouldn't say that necessarily, but there is no question about whether it's going to take human jobs. That's the certainty, right? I mean, the same way. It's more about how and, well, how, what kind and, and, of and how we can be time frame. How is it going to displace people? What kind of shocks will it be to the system? There's no question that any kind of technology, I mean, almost by definition, uh, you know, takes people's jobs. Whether it's industrial revolution or the development of the printing press, it took you know the printing press took the jobs of scribes. So we are seeing it displace people. That's already happening. Um, optimize supply chains, eliminate people who mess with numbers on Excel sheets. Um, you know, automated uh, ad placement in, in uh, on websites and whatnot change the job of the ad man or reduce the number of people required. If we start having if cancer is being detected by by computers, by convolutional neural networks, people aren't going to get more cancer to keep oncologists employed, are they? Yeah. So certainly it is displacing already. It is displacing. It'll continue to displace. And the job market is a market. So it's not so much will there still be jobs, but it's will there still be jobs doing what and paid how much. And it's quite hard to predict because the uh, automation can have unexpected effects. Like a few years ago uh, at my institute, uh, Carl Frey uh, did an analysis of which jobs are most susceptible to automation and which jobs are least. Uh, and it was quite interesting. But one of the jobs he found was the most susceptible was insurance underwriters. And Well, the insurance companies are the biggest adopters of modern machine learning techniques. Mm -hmm. And in my view, insurance underwriters are already obsolete in what their traditional job was, which was to assess the risk of, um, of the client and things like that. However, underwriters are still there and there's still lots of them and they're still highly paid. And as far as I can tell, what happened is that now they're on for their business experience, their contacts with clients, uh, so they have basically moved into a different part of their job. So we predicted they would be all automated. The bit of their job that we thought was the most important was, but they're still there doing the other aspects of their jobs. The reverse happens with secretaries. Uh, there used to be lots of secretaries in most companies. Uh, and secretaries were replaced mainly by word processors, yeah. not robot secretaries. So just one tiny bit of their job, in a sense, was somewhat automated, and that's completely destroyed the profession. And for underwriters, the core of their job was automated, and they're still there. So with that being said, then, are we moving to a world where we work differently, or are we moving to a world where we work less, because um, we can have things, more things done for us? The part of that is a social question. I mean, because domestic or gross global output has dramatically increased in the last hundred years, right? And, you know, to some extent we work less, but we also expect more goods. So that's going to be, there's going to be a social decision made at some point that do we want to start working less and having the same output, or do we want to keep working the amount we're working and having more output, more stuff? Mm. So I don't, I, I don't feel comfortable making a decision either way about working less. The type of work we do will change. I mean, GDP has increased hundredfold over a century or two, yeah. um, and there are very few people who just work a hundred times less than we yeah. used to. We probably could coordinate to work less, and I think 
But we, we do are, in some countries, right? Yeah, and I, I think even without coordination, we are working less overall, but it's a relatively weak effect. It's a social question, I guess, ultimately, right? It's not a technology question. Are people going to be feel comfortable working less and getting the same output? You know, Stuart was absolutely right. We've increased, you know, let's say a hundredfold, but we don't work one percent of the time that we used to. Yeah, and and but but it it might be the case that th those two worlds become closer together. So having questions about technology and having sort of like social discussions, because as those things, as one affects the other. We, they, they, they bleed into each other and we have to sort of um, have those different discussions to what we were having 10, 20 years ago. Well, communication is better, or I wouldn't go necessarily better. Communication is easier today than it was, but labor unions have been doing the same thing for you know, a century. So it's not necessarily the case that we weren't having that discussion about technology replacing work. We've always been having that discussion. You know, the question is, again, we're going to have to reassess what are our value systems and different societies are going to decide differently. Yeah, so there's, there's, there's things that machines can do and can't do well. So machines can't feel or behave like humans can, um, but they are hugely efficient, which is why we, um, they, they are attracted to a lot of people. So is there a danger that we strip out human compassion and human judgment if we rely more on AI? So first on a very minor point, um, in what way are machines efficient? As I say, they do narrow tasks very well currently. And it's not always necessarily what you would think of high or low status. For example, barristers are safe from automation. Um, paralegals are endangered because AI can do this the kind of research work much better. Um, so here the high status job is safe and the low status job is in danger. But in the medical profession, it's reversed. Nurses are safe. Doctors are endangered because the kind of skill of the doctor of just knowing so much facts and assigning it and connecting it with the symptoms is the kind of thing that can get automated. So um, when we say that they don't feel or behave like humans, this is what are they good at, what are they not good at? It's not so simple as saying compassion or things like that. Then in the medium term, there's the issue that as automation increases in a profession, you tend to get a de-skilling of that profession. Uh, current pilots tend to be not as good at piloting as the ones from 20 years ago, because the automation, the autopilots, and the other things on the plane are just so much better. Um, so we've had we've seen a small de-skilling. Eventually, the AI the AI autopilots will just become better than any human. Uh, so at that point, it's it an improvement. But there might be a dip as we move into the automation. But there's also an interesting point here about compassion and feeling and whatnot. You know, in the, in the neurobiology field, there is something of a consensus that the brain is a machine, right? That there is no ephemeral function taking place. I mean, there are there's a decent movement within the neurobiology field that believes the brain that free will is an illusion concocted by your brain so this feeling and all that stuff presumably then has a deterministic system behind it which means that certainly a computer could feel in the same way in the same sense that a human being feels just you wouldn't feel the same it wouldn't feel the same to you as a human being but they'll be carrying out deterministic tasks 
I, I don't expect computers to feel similarly to humans. Um, a lot of our feelings come from our evolutionary past, and a lot of them were to address certain issues, like why do humans get so angry when they're taken advantage of? Well, because this is an advantage in a, in a society where someone might be tempted to take advantage of you. If you get irrationally angry, they won't try. Well, they won't, hold on, so they won't feel the same way as you. But I mean, they won't have the same resultant feeling about mm -hmm. something. Yes. But the mechanism behind feeling, is there any reason why that couldn't be replicated in a computer? No. And, and, and would we want I it? was... Uh, no, there's no, there's no reason why it uh, couldn't be, but I don't think it will be. Okay. Because the AIs will be, or the algorithms will be tasked with specific tasks, and the human feelings are not necessarily the best way of accomplishing those tasks. We might have something that we could call sort of a special category of AI feelings uh, that are different from human feelings. But when we're talking about compassion, uh, we're talking also about values and value what humans alignment. want and the value alignment between the AI and the, um, the human, which is a big and difficult task. Um, AIs are basically, if they ever have a mind, it will be a very alien mind very different from uh, the ones we uh, conceive of. Like, for example, um, if we make, uh, if we give unlimited power to a human and their job is to filter spam, they might abuse their power, but they really understand what we mean by filtering spam. If we give unlimited power to an AI and task them with filtering spam, they might just shut down the internet because this is the fastest way of accomplishing <laughs> yeah. that goal. And it's 100% accurate. All spam will be filtered. <laughs> it will be absolutely perfect. Well, um, we're going to talk a bit about how to protect humans in this brave new AI-centered universe. But first, let's quickly slip into reverse gear and hear a clip from the last episode of Sideload, where we talked all about tech trends for 2020. The changes that we might see coming, and we were having this conversation with Justin the other day, having come back from CES, actually might feel more incremental than they are these big, significant mm -hmm. shifts. Um, the real we've been talking about quantum computing for a while, we've been talking about 5G for a while, but the reality is those 5G networks, which actually could enable quite a lot of quite amazing technology, given, you know, giving us high broadband speeds and uh, internet access at the edge of the networks, those aren't actually going to be in place for about mm -hmm. four or five yeah. years. And so then that, that takes us then to the end of the, the decade. I think mm -hmm. we'll, we'll continue to see people who are pushing the boundaries, people like Elon Musk and, you know, go, thinking about going to space. But even those those kinds of space exploration technologies, they said that we, we would have the first man, uh, man flight into space, commercial flight, mm -hmm. by now. And that's not happened. And that's despite... Elon Musk, uh, uh, Amazon, Blue Origin, and others putting you know milli millions and millions of dollars into those things. They're, they're kind of, they are the moon, they are literally the moonshot. YL Elrify from Hitachi Vantara and AI researcher Stuart Armstrong is with us at Sideload HQ. So next question then: How will AI affect the future workplace? Will it be um, our working environments, uh, w well, what will our working environments look like when AI truly transforms it in the future? It's, 
kind of jobs we do are going to change. As Stuart was talking about before, it might be the historically less prestigious job of paralegal that gets replaced, mm. while the historically more prestigious job of lawyer gets replaced. In the medical field, it might be the, the, the doctor who gets replaced, while the historically less prestigious job of nurse is not replaced. And that's because of the types of skills. Um, AI, as we currently conceive it, you know, can work on narrow, well-defined problems. It's not particularly good at comforting a patient, but it is really good at identifying a melanoma, for instance. So, um, can I predict exactly what changes are going to occur? No. I can say, I can suggest that well-defined jobs will be taken over by artificial intelligences. So what do what do we do? And and this this might be outside of the realms of technology, but I think it's a question worth worth asking. What do we do in this future? Um, what, for example, do we tell our kids to study, or what? How how do things change that way? Because it's definitely going to be a different world to the world that we grew up in. Well, I just want to emphasize the great uncertainty yeah. uh, here. We just we, we don't know if an AGI will be developed anytime soon. Uh, we don't know how powerful it might be. We don't know how powerful uh, narrow algorithms of their own will be. We don't really know what skills are going to be necessary and rewarded. Um, like in in a company, the CEO and the cleaners are probably the safest because um, their jobs are difficult to reproduce. But um, apart from that, it's very uncertain. Um, also, what's going to be, what professions are going to be the most remunerated, um, which are the most essential, and it also depends to some extent on uh, uh, policy, government policy, and social trends as well. So, but technology is always changing work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, technology is always changing work. So, I mean, provided it's not a massive dislocation, an instant dislocation. I actually think the market naturally will adjust for it. Yeah. I mean, 40 years ago, nobody or very few people were telling their children to study computer science. Now it's a relatively... Uh, people do have naturally evolved into, hey, you need to study computers at some point. Yeah. I don't think that, subjectively at least, we are in the era of greatest human change mm. at the moment. Uh, I think that we've had eras where it was changing a lot more. We're now in a place where we've basically been in peaceful uh, democratic capitalism, at least in, in the West, for a long time, for several generations. Several generations of peace is very rare um, in history and in most parts of the world. Um, and so, in a sense, some aspects of modern life have never been so stable. Yeah. Will, will, will that be the case? Because some of the concepts you mentioned, um, especially um, far future stuff, that sounds like it would turn life on its head completely. It certainly would. I mean, an yes. artificial general intelligence would absolutely upend things. A powerful artificial general intelligence uh, would completely change things. So you should distinguish that oh, from... Yes. Okay. from narrow algorithms or less powerful AGIs. Yeah. Um, narrow algorithms or less powerful AGIs, it's in a sense business as usual with a lot more 
potential, a lot more uncertainty and a lot more risk, but nothing really qualitatively different. When you say less powerful, you mean like an AI in a box? It's basically what, what is the actual return to intelligence? We have bigger brains than chimpanzees, and chimpanzees have a few hundred thousand population, use basic human uh, wooden tools. Humans spread across the entire surface of the world. We have heavy industry, uh, we've been on the moon, and chimpanzees survive now because we've decided to protect them. So a small difference in intelligence has had a massive difference in outcome. Now, if you have a smart AI, is it there going to be a similar disequilibrium of power? So smart and powerful. Yeah. Because I mean, those are two different things, right? If it's disconnected from, well, from the world. Humans are powerful because we are smart. Um, if we had an AI that was in some sense smarter than us, would it necessarily be powerful? I think it's very likely to be very powerful. I have various scenarios and arguments for that, but it's not certain. So that's why I just add the preface, smart and powerful. Sure. So when, when we think about the, the future development of AI, how can we ensure that human well-being is being protected and who should be responsible for this? I should. No, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I am. <laughs> so again, this is, this is a big area of, of, of Stuart's research. Yeah, so aligning the, the sort of if you want two challenges, the f if we're going for the scenario where there's powerful, smart AGIs, we have to do two things. We have to align them with some human preferences, and then we need to do an e equitable way of basically aligning it with different human uh, preferences. Um, so the second part, there's quite a lot of people at the Institute working on. That is a political, social, um, maybe economic issue. Um, and it's a reasonably similar to the challenges we have today. The first part is mainly a technical issue. How can we ensure that an AI is aligned with at least one human's value? And that's the challenge that I'm working on. They're trying to get it to, yes, this, this AI can be said to be in some sense aligned with this human. Uh, and once that ch that challenge is what I'm working on, that's what Stuart Russell is also working on a lot and other people around the world. Um, and the point is that Stuart Russell made is that engineers don't say, let's build a bridge that doesn't fall down. They say, let's, <laughs> let's build, build a bridge. bridge. Yeah. Um, so as these machines gets more and more powerful, we won't say an AI that's also safe. We'll just say AI because also safe will be implicit in it does what we want to do. Engineering, though, you know, has evolved along a very different trajectory than, let's say, computer science. I mean, I, I was writing about this really recently, that uh, the discipline, you know, as Dr. Russell said, no civil engineer says, I want to build a bridge that doesn't fall down. <laughs> It's built into it, but it's also because the cost of doing things over and over is tremendous in most engineering fields. I guess one of the concerns, one of the challenges we have in computer science is that it's so easy to try things out, right? There is that, but also think of the benefit of success versus the cost of failure. 
if you design a successful bridge, you will get paid a salary and uh, you may get, uh, people may clap at you at a meeting of engineers um, at mm -hmm. some point. If your bridge falls down, you're professionally ruined and have caused the death of uh, tens of people or this is basically a complete disaster. So excessive conservatism in civil engineering is just what you expect from the incentives. And at the moment, AIs, where AIs are relatively weak, there is no real drawback to a bad AI. You might get some bad are publicity. You, sure about that? you get some bad publicity, but then you retract it and then people move on. But if as AIs get more powerful, the negative consequences get bigger. So the the penalty for failure gets higher. So that's a way I think that more engineering conservatism type of thinking may come into the computer science profession. As it gets more powerful, as it gets more able to influence the world. Mm -hmm. Although I'm not sure that I agree that it doesn't already exercise much more influence on the world than civil engineering. Um, I think far more people die from from misshapen AI or, I mean, whether it's going down clickbait holes whereby, you know, within an hour of watching random YouTube clips, you're in InfoWars. Uh, I think that's probably genuinely dangerous and probably does kill people. We just don't recognize it. Or we consider it media, not well, click optimization algorithms. Well, that's something we're going to get better at, and I, there's some signs already that that sort of radicalization doesn't happen as often as it used to be. The algorithms are getting a bit smarter. In fact, this is something that my boss, Nick Bostrom, identified as the treacherous turn. For the moment, when AIs get smart, smarter, it gets better, at least for the designers of the AI not necessarily for others. So for the moment, smarter AI is better. The danger comes when the uh, smarter AIs can be more dangerous, uh, where, the, where you, this is where you have to ensure that the goals are fully aligned, where the smarter AIs can slip from our control more easily and can do things that we don't understand. So basically, the moment where we need to be really worried is the moment when making the eye smarter does not buy us a better outcome. However, we decide to define better. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so while, what, what are some of the things that you're working with your clients on right now with Hitachi? Yeah, so it's a very different thing. It's not this artificial general intelligence with many of these same moral problems. It's, uh, uh, it tends to be much more narrow. It tends to be things like optimizing supply chains, getting the right amount of stuff to the right people at the right time. Optimizing those supply chains bring down cost of supply chain management, which of course brings down the cost of goods, which of course in the end is something that the public at large benefits from. Optimizing schedules, reducing breakdowns on systems and transportation, and uh, um, making better predictions about customer wants and needs, customer requirements, um, reducing fuel consumption in ships, uh, ships at sea of course has beneficial effects for the environment and for the company and brings down the cost of operation. Those are the kind of problems we typically solve. Being able to detect when something is anomalous in a system. 
or being able to do better predictions. So you talk, we talked briefly about the insurance industry. The insurance industry is generally considered to be the largest adopter of, of modern AI and machine learning techniques. And of course, we're involved there as well because their entire job is being good at predicting things. That's the entire job of the insurance market. AI, as it's used in the commercial world today, for the most part means doing better predictions. The idea of predicting has been around for centuries. I mean, regression was developed one of the standard techniques was developed at the what, start of the 19th century. And most companies are still using that technique 200 years later. So, you know, we're seeing a huge upsurge in, in these things. And of course, all of our customers are looking to us to, to help with that. So let me ask this question as we finish off then. So according to Edelman's recent trust barometer findings, three in five British people believe that the technological change is happening too fast. And then there's also the um, associated issues of trust as well. So do, do you think, um, what do you think the tech sector should do to gain the public's trust in AI? I, I worry about three and five say technological change is happening too fast. What is it that they're proposing? Are we proposing then to unplug the computers or, I mean, that technological change that reduces costs, that improves predictions, that reduces the, expense behind food and improves farming techniques and improves energy production that's saving real lives but it freaks people out and and, 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 and some some people are scared by it some people can't turn on a computer and do that basic stuff let alone one, the big picture stuff about ai like, and everything I, I can say my concern about the survey is if if you ask the question is technological change happening too fast that's a loaded question i also want to know what people ask answered to that question in previous years is this a new high? Is this a new low? It's... Yeah. So I, mean, what, what, I guess what could be done? Transparency is important. If companies feel, if, if individuals feel like they're being manipulated, obviously that is a catastrophic outcome and would have um, you know, dire effects on people's w willingness to use t uh, evolving technologies. On the other hand, I mean, some onus is on people to understand what's going on. People were made... Uh, so, you know, some measure of transparency is certainly called for. And I wouldn't be surprised if some measure of regulation comes into place to help enforce measures of transparency. But what would I say to them? Um, we're working on it. <laughs> also, and by the way, hold on. Sorry to interrupt. Start. Uh, the U.S. government and the European Union very recently uh, have published guidance on AI for 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 technology firms. How should they think about it? What should they be worried about? What kind of governance and controls should be in? You know, the, the EU has produced this and they've been very clear. This is in the European context aligned to our values. In the Americas, in the United States, they've done something very similar. So this is a problem that's being worked on. Yeah, but I think with, with AI and a lot of aspects of technology, legislation cannot move as quickly as the technology can. So there's, there's, there's that issue there of should the industry self-regulate? Can the industry be trusted? I think that's a whole no. bigger debate, isn't well, it? Well, no, you can't. You, industries will self-regulate insofar as they fear that lack of self-regulation will draw I mean, government regulation. Yeah. And the, and the recent regulations, uh, I don't know too much about the American ones, but the, the European one is very broad and not, not, not really wishy-washy, but sort of these are the principles and things like that. I that's it's all they can not do, right? micromanaging uh, of the... Um... Well, 
I've often, it's often my belief that the best regulations are the ones that work without the regulator having to understand anything uh, or anything much about the companies. That's hard. Uh, well, like, for instance, if you regulate CO2 emissions from a power plant, you can just sort of fly around the air, see how much CO2 is coming out, and you basically don't need to know anything about what's going on inside. Really? I, Simplifying I, I, a little bit. I want to take, take issue with you oh. there, because if I was a, a polluter, if I was a, a coal plant... I would put tremendous resources into changing the regulation from, let's say, I don't know the numbers, from 10 parts per million to 11 parts per million permissible, right? I would put tremendous resources in that because that has a very real measurable cost for me as a coal producer. Society at large has very little knowledge of 10 versus 11 parts per million, and so I'm the one putting my money into lobbying. I think there are, you know, there's, there's, a, there's an alignment problem there. Yeah, you're, you're talking about regulatory capture. Yes, regulatory capture, exactly. But regulatory capture is a lot easier if it's sort of a very micromanaged regulation. But, like, if you're counting parts per million and measuring the air, it seems to me that that's pretty micromanaged. You've selected the measure. You've selected, I mean, that's a... But imagine if instead... It was a very detailed thing about the interior of the plants. You had to do this. You have to do this in that area. You have to do that. Attempting to basically force the outcome by regulating every detail of the plant. Okay. I see what um, you mean. That kind of thing requires that regulators have a as good an understanding of power plants as the people who Correct. run them and build Correct. them. And so similarly, I'm completely opposed to sort of micromanaging of AI things. Because there, you would need the regulators to know more about AI or about algorithms than the companies that So what do you suggest that they regulate? That's why sort of the broad principles is a sort of better, it's more plausible to regulate at that level than at the specific details. Well, um, YL Stewart, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. A really, really interesting one. And a big thanks to you, listener, for tuning into this episode of Sideload. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Just search Edelman UK. And if you want to get in touch, send an email to sideload at edelman.com. Bye-bye.